We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Would you please turn in your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 2, where we'll pick up our reading in the book of Revelation. I want to make just a few introductory remarks concerning this uh, section we're reading here now. So as, as the, so as that we're not confused over uh, what we're talking about. And uh, the first remark I want to make is that uh, John is uh, called to write letters to a number of churches. And I want us to be clear that these are real historical churches that are being written to. Uh, they're not just representative of you know, churches in general, but real historical churches, though there is uh, truths that we can glean from, uh, and they are important today, still relevant. The second uh, remark I want to make is that you'll find in these introduction to the churches often saying, to the angel of the church. These are not angels uh, per se, the word angel uh, in Greek doesn't just mean, you know, the heavenly being, but it can, means generally a messenger. And so uh, we don't take a view that, you know, each church has kind of a, an angel that's watching over it, uh, you know, but rather messenger referring to the elder or pastor of that church, the, the leader of the church. And so these letters are being written to the elder or pastor of the church and to this historical church. Uh, in that day, and we find a number of churches mentioned here, uh, seven letters specifically. But uh, we'll look at the first few here this morning in chapter 2. John is commanded here in chapter 2 to first write to the church of Ephesus. It begins in chapter 2, verse 1, saying, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And then he writes, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. So he begins with a word of commendation, encouragement, that they're not willing to put up uh, with evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Who might that be speaking of? Christ, our Lord. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit, commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, which thing I hate. Repent! or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, an honest stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I, will give you to, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. 
but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed in pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're in the first section of Luke chapter 7. We are titling the message this morning, Faith and Fear. Those characteristics toward the Lord are a perfect way to approach God. And so let's continue to study Luke's gospel. He, he introduces us to Jesus, as you're well aware, in the opening chapters of his book. He's just completed his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. It says, when he had concluded all his sayings in 7.1, in the hearing of the people, then he entered into Capernaum. He had lived there. Uh, and, uh, and for some time set up shop there, as, as it were. And it says to us that he, a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying, the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation. And he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's where it should have been in the nation of Israel. Verse 10, and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. This is the first of two paragraphs that I uh, intend to cover, God willing, this morning. We'll see how it goes, but we'll begin with this. Uh, the title on my Bible says, Jesus Heals a Centurion's Servant. Another study Bible had this title, The Centurion's, uh, or the Centurion's Servant. The focus was on, in those headings, the servant or the healing but I want to focus it on something else, which I think is really the focus of this text, and that is the centurion's faith, the centurion's faith. The, the, the account of the servant is only really a vehicle that carries a much more important message for us this morning. The servant, or the centurion rather, had a servant who was very dear to him, and he wished for him not to die. Now, this may be... Uh, if you stop to think for a second, you know, you might think, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's nice, that's compassionate, that's normal. But what do you think about Roman soldiers, if you just kind of abstract from this situation, and centurions? You see them as kind of brutal killers, don't you? Men who are just about their duty and they have to do that lest they themselves die. 
So it's not the typical picture that you might formulate in your mind about a man, a centurion, who has no regard for the life and well-being of others. In fact, this man, this centurion, was caring. And we might even say he was somewhat devout. There are three centurions in the Bible that are like this. This man is one of them. Another one is called Cornelius. We read about him in Acts chapter 10 in the last couple of Wednesday evenings. And then there was one more. Do you remember where the other one was in the Bible? The other centurion. The one who was standing at the foot of the cross and saying, Surely this man was the Son of God when he saw him die. So we have three examples in the scriptures of these kind of people. So he had this care for this servant, and so he enlisted the help of his Jewish elder friends to approach Jesus and ask him to come and heal the servant. Now, there's, there's a thing that I thought about here as well with these, these elders. In one sense, it didn't take much convincing to, have, to, to go to help this centurion, you know, to say, okay, we'll go help you. We'll try to find this Jesus. We'll bring him to help you because the, the, the text tells us that he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Now, I don't know exactly how that looked, but you probably would have a great regard for somebody who came into your community, if you were a Christian person, and maybe they weren't even a Christian, or yet they weren't a Christian, and they gave $2 million to build a new church building, or they supplied all the labor that you needed to build that building, or whatever. I mean, you would have respect for that person, and if they ask you, do something, pray for me, help me, you would probably try to do what you could do. They did not want to disappoint him. But there's another angle to this because they were Jewish leaders of a synagogue and those typically weren't necessarily the most friendly to the Lord, right? So they might have a kind of a dual feeling going on here like, yeah, we want to help our guy, but he's asking us to go to Jesus and he's kind of not on the in crowd, you know, he's, he's outside. Maybe they're hesitant because they didn't like his teaching or because their peers would look askance at them for, for doing so. I mean, Jesus, remember back in, what was it, Luke chapter 4, uh, preaching in Galilee uh, and earlier in the uh, Nazareth area and uh, not accepted in the synagogue there and kicked out and all of that. Remember that? Very unhappy they were with him. Let me just pause and uh, mentioned this, although we know this quite well, most of us, but maybe somebody listening online doesn't, or maybe you're new here and, and don't. You do not need to use an intermediary to ask Jesus for help. You can go, in, fa in fact, not only you don't need to use one, you shouldn't use one, okay? You, you can go to him directly to ask his help. In fact, the scriptures are very clear. Jesus says, you don't even have to ask me. You just ask the Father directly in my name, and whatever you ask will be done. He will hear your prayers. He will answer them in accordance with his good and perfect will. So please don't think you need any kind of intermediary. You know, e even the kind of subtle, you know, intermediary thing that happens with pastors today. Well, if pastor comes and prays for me, then, you know, I'm all set. 
right? Or if, if I get close to him, then I'll ride up on his coattails. Look, I don't have coattails. You see this, just a regular suit jacket, no long tails on it, all right? You, no, no intermediary is necessary. Look, it's an honor to be asked to pray for you and participate in your spiritual life and counsel and all of that, but God directly will help you. He will help you. Now, if you compare this account to the parallel in Matthew chapter 8, it appears that the centurion in Matthew 8 goes directly to Jesus. So there's two explanations. Either he went directly and then either before or after sent uh, friends, but the context seems to cause me to lean in another direction, and that is that in Matthew, all Matthew is doing is reporting the action of the centurion through his servants. Like we say, you know, the White House did this. Well, the White House didn't do anything, you know. Or the president did this. Well, he probably didn't do anything. He probably had, you know, officials do the work. So when, when Matthew says, look, the centurion did this, how he did it was he told his servant to go and, uh, you know, or servants or whatever, and get these elders and go and talk to Jesus. And so I think that's probably what happened. Whatever the case is, I think these texts are easily harmonizable that way, either way that I've said here, uh, so it's not a big deal. Jesus, then it says, uh, went. They came to him. They begged him. They said he's, he's worthy uh, for, for, for this action that you would do. And by the way, we should regard ourselves as undeserving, unworthy of the least of God's favors but they had a different view of their friend, their centurion friend, and you can understand that. So it says in verse 6, then Jesus went with them. Can you imagine all of the, all of the pulls on Jesus, the time, the demands on his presence and his ministry? Uh, at certain times, particularly, it was just crazy, busy for him and for, for the disciples. But Jesus was responsive to the man's request. At the same time, as the centurion knows now that Jesus is coming, perhaps a messenger has come and said he is going to come, he gets second thoughts about what he's done. And you know how something, when you look back on it with hindsight, you know, somebody says, why did you do that? And you say, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like a good idea at the time to go ask Jesus to help, but then when he realized that Jesus is going to be soon in his immediate presence, he said, now wait a minute, I'm not so sure. Um, his eager desire to help the servant had instigated him to send for help. That's when it seemed like a good idea, but now the second thoughts have crept in, and perhaps he has some thoughts like Peter, depart from me, O Lord, for... I'm a sinful man. How can I be in the presence of the Holy One of God? I don't know exactly how the centurion thought of Jesus, but he must have thought of him as a holy man of something, a prophet at least, some miracle worker that had a direct connection to God. Was he worthy of bothering the Lord, or was he seeking a favor he should not have, or was he too sinful to be connected to the Lord? to be in close proximity to him? Was Jesus too high and too holy to associate with a lowly centurion, 
a man who perhaps had done wicked things in his life, a man who had been violent perhaps in war. And what I think he was experiencing was conviction of sin. Conviction does this to a person. It, it has this kind of two-fold feature to it. Conviction draws you into Jesus because he's the solution for your sin problem. But then it also makes you shy away from him because you're like, ah, I, he's too much. I, I hesitate because how can Jesus huh, you know, look up to heaven? No, I can't look up to heaven. I just beat my breast and I say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. This hesitancy to treat Jesus as common is very commendable. It calls to mind for us this notion that Jesus is a powerful king. He's the son of God. He's not to be trifled with. Not, not, not by anybody, not even by a Roman soldier. You don't mess with him. Now, the centurion, he, he didn't just, I don't believe anyway, I don't, I don't believe that he just made up his faith or made up his kind of you know, devoutness in order to just get Jesus to help him. He really had that level of belief that Jesus was able to help. But he's also at the same time serious that he is unworthy. You see that he has this kind of tension between fear and faith working in his life, faith drawing toward and fear drawing back. This is like the um, lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. The question came in the book, is he, about this lion, is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. The response, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You too want to maintain this, this twofold attitude of humility, of drawing, staying back a little bit in a way, but drawing near. If you're humble before God so that you recognize you are unworthy and that he is utterly holy and at the same time you are not satisfied with anything but sticking close to him. I don't know if I'm communicating the idea I'm trying to get across here, but this kind of two-fold thinking, two ways of thinking about this. The solution that the, the centurion comes up with is... Uh, Interesting. Uh, he, he, he exhibits his faith and keeps Jesus at a bit of an arm's length by saying to Jesus, look, just say the word. You don't have to come all the way to my house. He explains that he himself does not even go everywhere and micromanage everything. He just says, do it and it's done. Now that's amazing. Just say it's done and it'll be finished. Well, his faith is very well-founded because God spoke and the world came into existence. 
We'll say, see later that Jesus spoke and a man rose from the dead. And so he takes the analogy of what he does in his life and he believes that Jesus has the power to simply command the healing and it will occur. He genuinely believes that Jesus has that kind of power to act, we could say, remotely. He's heard of it or seen it in action himself. And what it what seems like Jesus does is like a projection of power from a distance and it almost in a way makes us more amazed like, you know, but it's kind of weird at the same time. Like, wow, Jesus can heal somebody that's about to die from a distance. Like, that's crazy. Well, it's crazy that he can do it when he's standing right next to the bed, isn't it? But the reality is that besides being omnipotent, God is omnipresent, so wherever his work is required is never too far away because he's right there. That's why prayer is so effective because I could pray for somebody that's 5,000 miles away and the God who answers the prayer is, he's not even five feet away. Jesus in his humanity, somewhat limited as it was by the the shell, we could say, of his human nature was not in the exact location where the sick person was, but he is present in terms of the second person of the Trinity, the divine logos, as we call it, who is omnipresent. The centurion understands here that faith and authority, too, are related ideas. Let me just read that verse again. Uh, I'm a, a man placed under authority and have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, he has, a, he has a level of faith that his authority is going to be uh, carried out. And he has this understanding that faith and authority are related ideas in the religious realm, too. You exercise faith in Jesus because he has authority. You exercise trust in him because he has power not only to do miracles, like healing sickness, but also the miracle of saving your soul from its eternal uh, default destiny, shall we say. You trust in him because he authoritatively tells you to trust in him. You trust in him because he is the Lord. You believe in him because you know he has the power to forgive sins and he has the power to judge. The marvel of this is is it a demonstration of powerful faith in a man you would never expect, this centurion. It's, it's the most powerful faith that Jesus had encountered among all his ministry yet to this point in the book of Luke. So as a human, he was marveled, he was astonished, but he knew, of course, in his omniscience what was in all people. So the Lord sent the friends away and told them that as they believed, it was done, and it was. Now, it occurred to me also to say this, that you know the centurion is a Gentile, and the promise of God back in Genesis chapter 12 was that if you bless Abraham, you will be blessed. Remember that? If you curse him, you will be cursed. Here's a Gentile who's blessing Abraham's seed, He's blessed them with friendship and with philanthropy, loving the nation of the Jews and building for them a synagogue. And now 
the Lord returns a blessing to him for what he has done. That's an interesting little side note, I think. We turn our attention now to the second of the paragraphs in our section. And the scripture says in chapter 7, verse number 11, the following words. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he had come near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. What a, what a terrible situation. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Notice the setting here. Jesus is coming with his disciples and a large crowd from Capernaum to Nain, and they have a large crowd also with the funeral procession. So you have a double large crowd in this city called Nain right outside the gates of the city or right at the gate of the city perhaps and that whole commotion. Uh, I thought you might be interested to know that Nain is a city, a village rather, in southern Galilee, south of Capernaum, near Samaria. You can picture that in your mind if you have your geography up, uh, stored upstairs there. It's in the tribal allotment of Issachar. It was almost 10 miles from Nazareth, and it's probably a city today called Nain, N-E-I-N, spelled slightly differently. Um, there is historical testimony that there used to be a church building there because of this miracle. The church was supposed to be on the site of the home of this widow nearby to Capernaum because the text tells us it was the next day, the day after, verse number 11. And we have the large crowd there. Historical or rather archaeological evidence suggests and shows that there were uh, tombs outside of the eastern gate of the city. And uh, it's on uh, the slopes of Little Hermon, I understand. I don't know that area too well or can't picture the geography, but uh, you could look that up. The situation was terribly sad. This, that very day, they, they didn't wait two or three days or a week, and they didn't have embalming and all of that. That day, this woman's son had died earlier in the day. They got together the, the funeral procession and the coffin, and they carried this young man's body outside of the city, wailing and weeping and mourning and probably music and all of that that accompanied their mourning ritual. And she had lost her only son. She lost her husband, too. I mean, she was a miniature version of Naomi. The circumstances were even more poignant because the young man that she lost was, in fact, a young man. It says in verse 14, when Jesus spoke to this one, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. We don't know how young young is, but he could have been a late teenager. He could have been in the early 20s. Who knows exactly, but this woman has lost now everything. Everything that was of any kind of significance in a human sense, her husband and her son, she bore with her own body. Something tragic had happened, and he didn't reach full age, full normal age. And so a large crowd from the city was mourning with the mother and joined this large crowd already with Jesus. The large crowds, I think, are mentioned, and I'll just use them to point out, 
there were a lot of eyewitnesses to this event. This wasn't something that just, you know, happened in front of a few people. So when the Lord saw her, what do you think he felt? What you should feel. Compassion. When you see a situation so pathetic, so difficult, so grievous, you ought to feel... There are people in this world, though, that don't feel that way. They're just like, whatever. You know, people come and people go, and that's just the way that it is, and, you know, or it's just a business, you know, the funeral business, or it's whatever. My friends, don't lose the, the, the heartstrings of compassion. Be able to shed a tear for somebody who's in mourning. Be able to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, and rejoice with those who rejoice, for sure. In addition to all of this, there's this, the kind of the human element to it, but then there's the additional element that she is a widow, and widows and orphans are of particular concern to God. True religion and undefiled before God the Father is this to do what? To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And back at the end of the Old Testament, that's in James chapter 1, in uh, Malachi Uh, Let's see, it's in chapter 3, verse number 5. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus is still the same compassionate Savior now that he was then for you and for me as well. Now the resurrection miracle. Again, this is a vehicle to teach us something, okay? We're learning about faith and fear in these two portions. So verse number 16, or 15, um, sorry, 14, I go back one more. Uh, He came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. I can only imagine that moment. (laughs) What's going to happen next? Who is this man who's come to touch the coffin? And out of respect for him, they stop the procession. You might wonder if it's an unclean thing to do to touch a coffin or to touch a dead body. You can touch a coffin today. You can touch a dead body today. It's not going to make you ceremonially unclean. It doesn't matter for Jesus, though, because his unlimited, unrelenting holiness drives away any hint or shadow of uncleanliness. It does not go toward him. The the power goes out from him in his healing ministry or raising in this case. Plus, the scripture says he has the keys of death and of hell. That means he has authority over those things. Certainly demonstrated, or most clearly after his resurrection, you know, after he was he who was who died and now is uh, arisen from the dead again. He has those keys. He has the power over it. Three times the Lord is recorded as raising somebody from the dead. Okay, another three here. We had the three centurions. Now we have three. What were the three? You have Lazarus. You have this case, and you have the daughter of Jairus. Okay, but then look at chapter 7, verse 22. This is fascinating. 
uh, John the Baptist will come to him and he asks a question about, are you the coming one or we wait for another? And Jesus said to the messengers, go and tell John the things you've seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. There's only one occurrence in Luke of this before that passage, and that's this one. But it sounds like he has done this before elsewhere. That's, that'd be interesting to know more about those. But in any case, Jesus has power over life and death. These miracles, this power shows that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, among other things, to deliver authoritative messages from heaven, and so on. But in this case, he simply addresses the young man as if he were asleep and tells him to get up. Hey, it's time to get up. How many times have I said that to our boys in the morning? You know, it's time to get up, get moving. And and here's the amazing thing. The young man obeyed. He didn't complain. He didn't turn over and put the covers over his head. He didn't try to close the casket and say, leave me alone. <laughs> he got up. The text says, he sat up and he began to speak. I'd like to know what he said. And he presented him to his mother. And then fear came upon all and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. And so the report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. Now the mechanics of this Resurrection are beyond our comprehension. If we presume that at his death here earlier in the day, one or more angels accompanied his spirit to paradise, that's indicated in Luke 16 in the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus tells us that Lazarus lands up in Hades. uh, Sorry, the rich man lands up in Hades and Lazarus, he's accompanied by the angels to Abraham's bosom or what we call paradise. And so if that was the case, then I'll speculate that when somebody comes back to life, the angels accompany the spirit back. Jesus is like, now wait a minute, guys, speaking to his angels. Turn around, bring him back, and put him back together again. To me, this is sort of like when God breathed into Adam the breath of life. This case is not breathing in new life, it's bringing back the spirit principle, the the Ruach, the Numa that God had made in this man early on in his, in his, at the beginning of his life, putting it back into his body, and then whatever was on the material side, the physical side, if I could say that way, remember how God formed man out of the dust of the ground? Well, he had a whole lot more than the dust of the ground in this case. He had a body that had been damaged somehow, perhaps, well, had begun to decompose in the hour since his death. And so all he had to do was repair that, The spirit comes back, and this one is alive again. Jesus still and always possesses this power. He's been assigned this authority by his Father. He's the author of life, and he is the continuer of it, and he is the resurrector of it. Every resurrection in the Bible is an illustration of how God can take a living person who is spiritually dead, okay, every, every, let me say it clearly again, every physical resurrection is illustrative of spiritual resurrection or spiritual life. 
in which God calls someone who is spiritually dead by means of the gospel, and they come to spiritual life. The gospel brings with it regenerating power. The fact that God gave his son to rescue you from your sinful state, all the way to his own death he went and rose again from the dead, demonstrates his power to save your souls. Do you believe in Jesus? My words that you need him may fall on deaf ears and dead ears at this moment. But I pray at some time in the future, when the Lord is pleased, he would do a voiceover, a voiceover my voice, and you would hear the voice of the Son of God calling you out of death and into life. And with his power at work, you would hear what he is saying and be irresistibly drawn to the one who alone can save your soul. Do you hear the voiceover right now? It's not just my word. It's the voice of the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, who says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me and they follow May God's word penetrate your heart this morning if you don't yet know him. May it be like the man in the byre, in the coffin, dead as he was, yet he heard the voice of the Son of God and he obeyed. You hear the voice of the Son of God? What is he saying? Believe in me. Trust in me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Are you hearing his voice talking? Not my voice talking, his voice. Listen. The Spirit of God wants you to listen to his word. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Well, the young man in the coffin heard, and he awoke. But then the Response of the crowd is interesting. It gives us three or four responses here. Number one, fear seized them. They were amazed and troubled at the same time. You remember that, that twofold idea that I had with the centurion, how he was drawn to Jesus, but then he was drawing back? Well, you're drawn to a man who can raise the dead, but then you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not so sure. This guy has got some kind of power. To put off the fear that comes with this sort of situation, modern people say things like, you cannot raise a dead person. So this is just a myth. I don't have to deal with it because it's just a fancy story. You see that? You can make all kinds of excuses. What are some other ones? Well, there are a lot of stories of people who are in a coffin, you know, in the, in the morgue or in the... In the uh, funeral home, but they weren't really dead. I've heard of many of these over the years. In fact, just I think it was this past week I heard of one. Uh, it was in India. An ambulance was carrying a man's body to the funeral home, whatever, however they do it there. Forgive my you know, lack of knowledge of the customs and terms, but the vehicle hit a pothole and the man woke up. 
the only good use of a pothole. <laughs> or somebody would excuse this, this whole situation and say, look, medical science resuscitates people all the time. You know, they brought them back to life. Well, it really was because he wasn't dead yet. Okay? He wasn't dead yet. People today appeal to naturalism or science as an explanation for phenomena they cannot otherwise explain. In that way, they don't have to deal with God. They don't have to deal with the fear, with the amazement. They don't have to glorify God. Secondly, they, the people had to, had to invoke the divine here because mere humanity, mere science, mere nature could in no wise explain what they had just experienced. Remember, I'm telling you about a crowd of people who had diagnosed the situation. They knew this young man was dead for some hours, and now he's alive. Thirdly, the crowd recognized Jesus as a prophet. Notice the verse 16 again. Fear came upon all. They glorified God. <clears throat> they, couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't do anything but glorify God. And then they said, a great prophet has risen up among us. They're thinking, man, this is like Elijah and Elisha all over again. This is super. We've got the prophets back among us. And then finally, they recognized God had visited his people. Now, they may have thought about this indirectly, like God visited us through the prophet Jesus, Ben-Joseph. You understand what I mean when I say his name that way, Ben or Bar, the son of Joseph? You know, they would think of him that way. But I'm thinking of this visiting more directly like God visits the nation in the person of Jesus, not just indirectly like through his servant or through a pastor or something like that. For God to visit is more than just to stop by and say hello. It means that his grace is present, his presence is present, to provide blessing that naturally comes with that presence. So this is what happened. We see fear and faith mixed in the response of the centurion we see fear in the crowd, and no doubt, I hope, no doubt, Jesus' miracles in both cases, raising the servant uh, to health and resurrecting the son of the widow at Nain, both of those were an impetus for faith in at least some of the onlookers. And so the question this morning is, do you also fear the Lord Jesus and believe in him to the saving of your soul? When you evaluate your own life, do you recognize the twofold aspects of faith and fear? Do you really fear the Lord? Do you have faith in Him? And I'm not saying those two to, keep, to have you address them separately. I need you to address them both. You know, a lot of people say, I believe in the Lord, but they, they live as if they don't fear Him one little bit. And others that kind of fear God, but they haven't come to the understanding that you can love Him and love can drive out that kind of abject fear and cause it to be a fearful reverence and respect for God. So do you have both fear and faith? Do you trust in the Lord? That's really what we're saying this morning, and I hope that you are. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in us as we've discussed this morning that these events that have been spoken of, that have been we've read about, will be powerful impetus in us to generate saving faith if we don't have it already, 
and certainly a fearful respect of the living God. Lord, I pray let no one leave here without dealing with those issues, those deep issues in their mind and heart, and experience the power of God and the salvation to everyone, everyone who believes in Jesus' name.